Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Alan Ruskin, Deutsche Bank Securities Managing Director and Chief International Strategist, joins us alongside Bloomberg's very own Luke Cower. Guys, I want to talk about the volatility we're experiencing in the equity market. Luke, just how rare is it to have persistently high volatility over an extended period outside of recessionary conditions? Oh, well, I think I think a lot of listeners return towards the late 90s as a time where you did have kind of VIX up stocks uh, up and you know this time we've got kind of VIX persistently high stocks not really going up. What I find interesting is the relative flatness of the VIX curve. So normally we talk about it's upward sloping. That's you know kind of a recognition that you know the historical pattern of volatility is you get spikes and then kind of settle down to some kind of mode over some period of time. It's very very flat throughout its duration. What that says is you know market participants seem to be expecting this volatility to be sticky for a while and they've been expecting this for a while. That that's the rare part to have a persistently flat curve for so long hasn't really happened in recent history outside of you know your 2011 experience. So what we do we end up with? That. We end up with gappy markets and a lot of volatility and a lot of people trying to rationalize that. And a real conversation emerged over the last few weeks about false narratives. Alan blaming the S and P 500 and the move yesterday on Brexit for me was a pretty good illustration of the extent to which some people are willing to embrace false narratives to rationalize volatility and gappy markets. That's a mistake, isn't it? Well, I think uh, we're always looking for reasons to explain prices, but prices themselves are usually telling us something. And when you're seeing a market like you've seen of late, where there's you know, sort of underlying weakness, whippiness, nervousness, skittishness, um, and the volatility you just described, it's usually telling you that there's some sort of underlying uh, macro piece that is uh, disquieting. And I would say in this instance, I think the problem the market faces is that there's a sense that we're near the end of the cycle, as it were. Um, that's whether it's a, you know, an, a, um, a false narrative is questionable, perhaps, but uh, that's really the underlying problem I think we face. Luke? Uh, to Alan's point, I think one thing that I've picked up recently, it's my new favorite chart. It's a one-year, two-year swaption vol as a ratio of one-year, 10-year swaption vol. So the implied volatility of two-year rates versus 10-year rates over the next year. And that ratio has risen quite markedly. It's risen in a way it hasn't risen since the taper tantrum and to levels since that. So in other words, the rates market seems to be pricing in some kind of inflection point uh, for the Fed over the next two years in, in a way that it hasn't uh, for any part of this cycle, really. And I think that's something that's driving a lot of the, the fears and the conversation across you know, rates, equities, credit. Can you identify a catalyst on the horizon that would generate an inflection point for the Federal Reserve, Alan? Well, I think the markets already, uh, as, as, as we were saying earlier, uh, suggest that there might be an inflection point. So it's been an unusual moment, this really, where you've had uh, the market taking out this amount of uh, effective yeah. Fed tightenings and you know, really pricing in less than one Fed tightening for 2019 now. So I would say that to some extent the market feels that um, and, and is signaling in the Fed fund futures market that you know, perhaps the Fed is going to be easing in 2020, certainly 2021. So when volatility was low and liquidity was abundant, this is basically 2017, a lot of people used to talk about being lulled into a false sense of security. 
my question essentially, Alan, is whether because we have high volatility and diminished liquidity, are we being lulled into a false sense of insecurity? These fears about 2020, these fears about a growth slowdown, a la 2016, is that a false sense of insecurity? Well, I, th- I think volatility is a you know, healthy thing on the whole. I think it uh, you know, sort of knocks out the complacent money. Um, and you've seen in general asset prices are rich across you know, most assets. So I think in that sense, a little bit of volatility is no bad thing. And the Fed should actually see it in that light. Um, at the same time, um, you know, whether this is actually suggestive of a sharper slowdown than um, you know, I expect, yeah, absolutely. I think the, the economy is not going to slow down as much as the market's fearing at this point in time. Luke? So the one of the big criticisms of the Fed's you know 2004 2006 tightening cycle was that it was so telegraphed you knew what was coming and effectively they never tightened financial conditions because you were you know you were able to price the path fairly fairly easily so again Talon's point I think the idea of introducing some volatility about the market implied forward path is something that might extend the cycle uh, kind of counterintuitively by kind of shaking out any signs of exuberance in risk assets. Alan, you want to answer that? Yeah, I think, you know, oddly enough, if we have uh, some sort of slowdown now, I think it is likely we get less of a sharp slowdown, say, in 2020 and 2021. So if 2019 is a little bit weaker than we perhaps thought uh, a month or so ago, that would be no bad thing. What's the base case for Deutsche Bank now going into 2019 for the US dollar? Um, US dollar, generally a little bit weaker, um, perhaps sort of building more towards the second half of the year. The idea in general is to have the baton shift from the Fed tightening story to an ECB hiking story. That's taking a long time. That is a big call, Luke. (laughs) And then, Alan, two things. You recently wrote to something very good about the the role of the U.S. dollar and your outlook for that and how it plays into your outlook for the yield curve. So if you could address that at all. And also, we've kind of seen the Fed funds and uh, Eurobor spreads for uh, calendar year 2019 compress. Will the ECB be in a position to go if the Fed is only going once? Can those two worlds kind of coexist? Yeah, I think that last question is probably as important as anything in the foreign exchange world, really. I think you hit the nail on the head that uh, as Fed rate expectations are depressed, you're finding the same thing uh, vis-a-vis ECB expectations. And I think it is going to be extremely difficult to see the ECB hiking as the Fed eases. Um, you know, we have to have some sort of environment where there's a slowdown in the US economy and that slowdown doesn't pervade itself throughout the world and inclusive of the Euro economy. Um, that does not look likely. At this point in time, the Euro economy is fragile. And that's part of the reason we've actually pushed out our ECB uh, rate hiking uh, cycle to 2020 now rather than 2019. You're not alone, I don't think, on that call. President Mario Draghi delivering the latest decision and a news conference that comes up on Thursday. A special thank you to Alan Ruskin, Deutsche Bank Securities Managing Director and Chief International Strategist. Amazing, Luke, how the psychology of this market has changed. People worrying about a Federal Reserve raising too much and now worrying about why the Federal Reserve is not going to be raising interest rates through 2019. A growth scare. It feels like 16. It feels like 2011 again. 
Uh, very, very much so. And I think, you know, even to that point this morning, uh, when we get a spike in futures on you know, positive trade headlines, it's I, I get more messages about people looking to you know sell the rally and sell the rip. Whereas before yeah. it was we could ignore any negative catalyst and still kind of just grind higher forever. So it is amazing how psychology has changed. It's amazing how we are searching for narratives and, uh, you know, nothing's quite lining up. I can it, tell you it that. It has very much gone from buy the dip to sell the rip. Bloomberg's Luke Cowher, great to catch up with you, sir. Our next guest was scheduled to be with Monday, but he was in medication at Hanover's famed medical institutions. He is David Blanchflower of Dartmouth College, who uh, the doctors made him put out the tweet this weekend of his grandson climbing out of the crib and escaping. And then a search began across all of the New Hampshire hills for his grandson. Danny, that was a tweet of the weekend. Uh, wonderful to have you uh, with us. Your grandson climbs out of the crib at what, eight months? Well, no, he's just under two. But uh, oh. yeah, yeah, we, we, he kept escaping. So we put the camera in there and then then you saw what happened. Very clever. <laughs> very, well, that was good to see. And I thought it was uh, charming. <laughs> and thank God for those cameras. Uh, uh, new technology that's available uh, today. <laughs> Uh, David Blanchard, let us just start with your general comment on your United Kingdom, Ireland, Scotland, and your Wales. Well, I I wrote something yesterday where I guess the two words I would use would be chaos reigns. Um, I I thought actually what sums it up, um, people may know about what happens in the British Parliament, but John can talk about it. Somebody, an MP yesterday, ran down the floor of the House of Commons and picked up the mace uh, and ran and ran back with it, and then was sort of sent away. I mean, that it was a very unusual time. Um, denials of things that were going to happen, eventually a vote that didn't happen. Um, I mean, utter chaos. The markets um, went crazy. It's really absolutely <laughs> unclear where. Danny, this you goes. need to explain this. You do know that, don't you? The mace, yes, is this, the mace is this big club that sits in the middle of the, the exactly. House of Commons. And essentially what it represents is the, the royal authority of Parliament. So really, if you go ahead and lift that, essentially it's a huge dissent against whatever is taking place in Parliament. Exactly right. I've seen it a couple of times exactly. before, Danny. It's not that rare. It's happened, I believe, a few times in the last 10 years or so. But it's certainly relevant to the overall mood oh, of Parliament at the right. moment. Absolutely. I mean, he handed it back completely peacefully, but the, the, yeah. the, 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 the scene was really quite a chaotic <clears throat> one yesterday. Yeah. And, and Danny, I don't see it really getting much better. I mean, the headline in the FT today is um, Junker rules out rene- renegotiation and made <clears throat> Brexit deal. So the question is really, which we, what we should talk <laughs> right. about is where does this go? I mean, the markets in the UK, the FTSE is back up today, down sharply yesterday. The pound was down sharply. But I think you were just talking about volatility, and obviously, what this is going to do—it generates great volatility in, in the UK, in the UK, and in the market. Maybe what people think now is that hard Brexit looks less likely. Right. Maybe Brexit itself looks less is likely. This, but I, 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 is this enough, uh, Professor Blanchflower, to make Mark Carney blink? How can he act <laughs> under this political strain? Well, obviously, I think I would say two things about what Mark has been doing. I mean, he's warned for a very long time 
that this is a significant downside risk to the to the British economy, the commentary in some ways has had an impact on the on the independence of the bank, and especially with the numbers that were produced last week, which generated a lot of concern. But I think he's he's had to tread a very narrow line, trying to say that this 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 is a major shock to the British economy. But obviously, on the other hand, he has to try and represent the independence of the bank. But the bank surely should have something to say. But last week, I think they made a major mistake, which was to say if there's a hard Brexit, our output would drop, unemployment would rise, and the bank's response would be to raise rates from 0.75 to 5.5. And and both Andrew Sanders and I put our hands up and said, hang on, chaps, I don't think we'd be voting for that. And that obviously generated a bit of a furore. But, but clearly, Mark Carney's sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness, what comes next? What the heck do we do? What did you think of Governor King's intervention, Danny? Um, I thought that was not helpful at all, as normally his intervention is not helpful, as it wasn't helpful at the time of implementation of austerity. So I thought that was hugely unhelpful. Danny, very rare for a former governor of the Bank of England to sort of really wade in and get involved in current policy. Very rare and somewhat, in your words, unhelpful. But I do wonder where it leads Governor Carney. He has made what many people consider to be a series of mistakes when it comes to communicating the view of the Bank of England on Brexit. Well, I, I, I think I think there's obviously he has to try and balance this big risk that he sees and the potential shock that he sees because of um, lots of comments, particularly from the Brexiteers, saying all oh, would be wonderful just to just hang on, folks. He's had to balance that um, against against trying to be seen as representing project fear or project hysteria. So I think we started out on the right line, saying this is a very narrow line to balance. He can't really do anything right. So I think he's done pretty darn well, actually, although last week I think yeah. he should have read the models and, and been a little more well, look, cautious. Danny, I, Danny, I, I agree think, with I you. I think it was a classic no win. He's, he's in a very, very difficult position stuck between a rock yeah. and a hard place. And I was there the day after Brexit where there was no leadership in the country whatsoever. And he was the right. one individual that stood up. What I don't agree with right. is what we have seen over the last 10 years is a series of stress tests for the institution. That stress test is higher inflation. And what the Bank of England has chosen to do is look through it and support output. So why is the Bank of England, led by Governor Carney, still pushing this idea that the next rate move in a hard Brexit because of a push higher in inflation could be a rate hike? Well, I think that's a really good question, John. I mean, I was actually live on Bloomberg as that as that came through. And just like you, I fell over more. I fell over backwards when I heard that. I mean, I mean, it seems it seems a sort of surprise. Clearly, the, they, they feel like they're their motivation is to focus yeah. on inflation. But if you look back, that was, the, in some sense, the mistake in 2008 and why, the, why you know, they missed the Great Recession. So I think that's clearly been a mistake. I mean, the, the idea that the, that the MPC members would sit and vote for rate rises yeah. as the unemployment rate doubled. Um, yeah. I mean, at the very least, so over the time period they were looking at. So I think this, this hang-up with inflation... But, uh, you know, this is, this, is, this is very tough, time, not least because he has no idea what the fiscal authorities are going to do and how much falls on the bank. But I agree with you that the, the, the emphasis on inflation yeah. has clearly looked to be a mistake, especially as you'd see that that, that that one-off inflation would likely go away pretty quick. Danny, very quickly here, the acclaimed Robert Peston tweets out with the former Prime Minister Sir John Major saying, quote, the clock must be stopped without delay. That's one of the great issues here. People would just like to right. freeze time. You can't freeze time, can you? 
Well, you can't freeze time because obviously we've had this two-year transition period. But actually, we had a ruling yesterday, which was actually pretty important from the European Court of Justice, saying that actually the, the, the UK could actually say, OK, forget, the, forget that we triggered Article 50. We could stop it. Um, so you're so you're right um, that, that, that obviously the, the past the last two years since that vote have been a sort of a hiatus. But I think in the end, what we're seeing is yeah. reality is hitting. People are being hit by reality, yeah. and and the, and the move against leave, I think, is perhaps yeah. surprisingly been relatively slow. But I think the, the I think a lot of people now think perhaps that was a mistake. And I think probably what may well end up seeing is this second vote what they call the people's vote, have a, have a second referendum. What that will ask and what will the outcome be, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, but, but you're right. This is, this, you can't set the clock back, but for a lot of people, maybe they wish they could. Danny Blanchfire, thank you so much. David Blanchfire of Dartmouth College here, of course, his work for the Bank of England in his classic book, The Wage Curve, uh, as well. Julia Coronado joining us, Macro Policy Perspectives founder and president. Julia, what are you seeing the data right now? Is there anything to be concerned about? Because the equity crowd, the investors worldwide Recession's at the moment, coming. focused on the United States and what 2020 could bring. Well, I think right now the data has been perfectly fine. The labor market data was solid, even though it was a little bit softer. Um, and broadly speaking, we've got a decent recovery that's moving along. Uh, there is a moderation anticipated next year, uh, and there's a lot of headwinds globally. Uh, the global economy slowed, and of course, the uncertainties from trade wars that are just dragging on and on uh, may dent investment and hiring at some point next year. And I think that's the focus right now. Okay, can monetary policy solve the agonies of a trade war, just as one example. I mean, I don't no, know if the textbook mon- says that. No, there is uh, not much the Fed can do other than respond to any hit to growth that comes with a trade war. Yeah. They can respond by not raising rates as much as they had previously planned to, and that seems to be the direction of travel and Fed communication to signal some but that's patience. all they can do is delay whatever, you know, the that's plans. all they can do. That's I, I right. That, a lot of this is most of yeah. this is out of their hands. <laughs> Where's the fiscal oomph right now? We mentioned austerity. Danny Blanchflower was critical of Mervyn King in a time of austerity. I mean, where are we on fiscal stimulus in the United States? We're about done with well, it, right? Yeah, no, we're, we're, there's still fiscal stimulus in the pipeline. You know, the direct stimulus from government spending that was legislated is still, you know, working its way into the economy. We've seen government contribute positively to growth for the first time in the cycle. Uh, so we see that there. Most of the dollars of the stimulus went to tax cuts. And that went directly into the stock market through share buybacks and the lift to, to valuations. Some of it went into CapEx. That boost seems, that boost seems to be fading a bit. Um, and consumer spending has been solid this year as well. So we do see evidence of the fiscal stimulus. It's not going to move into reverse next yeah. year. There's still some in the pipeline. So that's not an imminent headwind for the economy. How do you respond to troubled stocks 
becoming ever more troubled because of our international relations and because of our monetary debate. I mean, Deutsche Bank actually has a lift today, 7.50 euros, but GE ebbs away $6.93 for a share of the Schenectady giant. I mean, there, there's exo- these are exogenous shocks, aren't they, to selected mm-hmm. stories? Yeah, but I mean, if we step back a bit, look look at how far the market went in appreciation. I mean, it really was pricing in an unrealistically rosy scenario where the global economy kept clicking along on all cylinders despite tightening monetary policy and despite trade wars. And that just wasn't a realistic set of valuations. So in some senses, the yeah. correction we're seeing is very healthy, a return to more realistic valuations. We're still the stock market valuations are still quite solid. Uh, there's nothing here that says there's a deep worry about the valuation of companies built into prices. It was really just coming back down to earth in a sense. It is wonderful to have Julia Coronado with us. She uh, was was heroic and uh, took some criticism for a very cautious view of economic GDP recovery coming out of the crisis. She nailed that call, uh, and she joins us uh, now. Julia, I want to do sort of a year-end thing here. We've got some time here to step back, and I want to go to one of my themes of the year. My chart of the year is a twin deficits, the deficit, the fiscal deficit, the trade deficit. Forget about that. I want to talk about one of the other mysteries, which is really not chartable, And that is within the broad model of an economy, there's the LM curve, which is sort of a banking money curve. And there's the IS curve, ISLM theory, John Hicks. There's an IS curve, which is the real economy. Do we know what the real economy is with all the technology we're dealing with today? Oh, there's a lot of changes in the dynamics of our economy that's uh, reflecting the technological change. And one of them is inflation. Uh, We don't see as much inflation as we would expect at this point in the cycle. And part of that may be due to the disruption from technology, which has been a real disinflationary force. uh, And that force doesn't seem to be spent. There's just brutal price transparency uh, everywhere. And that just uh, really limits the degree to which those producers can pass prices along to consumers. This is not 1890, the first railroad revolution that failed But there was a second and a third one where they had a technological shift across America because Mm -hmm. of one generation of industrial production, one generation of logistics and transportation. I would respectfully Mm -hmm. suggest, Dr. Coronado, that what we're living in right now is like that second or third railroad revolution and that we really don't know where we are. That is so there is an active debate between what we can call techno optimists and techno pessimists. Um, is what we're in that transformational? It's possible we can imagine a future with driverless cars and so on where artificial intelligence really does transform just the way we live. Um, or you could not see those things come to fruition quite as much. And um, mm-hmm. we're already seeing some limitations yeah. of artificial intelligence and big data. So it's yet to be seen. I mean, there certainly is room for optimism, uh, and we have seen a lot of uh, transformational change, but we haven't seen productivity gains, which we might have expected to see. 
I mean, I love the idea of good technology and bad technology, and that gets to what I wanted to do next, which is, okay, we've got this mysterious technological overlay, whether it's industrial or consumer, whatever, our iPhones, blah, blah, blah. But the other thing we've got is a polarity of benefit. And that, and I saw mm-hmm. statistics that are just shocking about, you know, just as one example, folks, President Trump took X counties and, and Secretary Clinton took Y counties. And most of the economic growth occurred in the areas that Secretary Clinton won. OK, I yeah. get that. I think we all know that. But the, yeah. the, the dispersion of technological benefit or the dispersion of technological pain is tangible, mm-hmm. isn't it? Oh, very much so. We we can see that the technology, the technological change, is exacerbating income inequality. So yeah, we need you. more and more software engineers to develop these apps and these changes and how we're doing things, and that puts, say, the clerk at your local grocery store or or drugstore out of business. Uh, so it's a direct transmission from from the technology that we are relying on to transform everything and what it does to uh, the inequality in the job market. So that's a challenge, as you pointed out, that brings political challenges, political backlash. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that we can stop the force of technology, but there certainly is uh, right. some unwanted side effects from all of this um, yep. improvement. Right. Next idea. David Lipton with us, the uh, American representative to the IMF, Dr. Lipman, one of our front rate uh, economists right now. And he's talking in a speech at Bloomberg today about a multilateral recovery. We need to get back to a multilateral dialogue. Do, do, do we do that as a jump condition to a WTO or in honor of George H.W. Bush back to a GATT discussion? Or does it happen through bilateral efforts that get us back to regional block efforts that get us back to multilateral? Well, it certainly doesn't seem like we're going in that direction right now uh, in terms of more uh, coordination and um, uh, negotiation. Uh, if we look at what's happening with Brexit and what's happening with the U.S. and China, you know, it's possible that we'll make some progress, but the conditions are very fraught. The politics around this are very fraught, and it's not going to be easy uh, to find that low-hanging fruit. Um, you know, it's, it's a very, and I think we spoke earlier, that's partly what the market's yeah. reacting to. There really isn't a resolution in sight whereby we can sort of redefine the rules of the road in a mutually beneficial way and and, and realize the benefits from trade. It seems more yeah. like we are pointing fingers at each other. In the time we've got left, let's let's wander out to the Fed parlor game. I really don't like to do this, but with Julia Coronado, you've got to, you know, you've got to do it. I mean, December 19th, I don't even want to talk about Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. We're putting together wonderful shows uh, right now on that important December 19th meeting. As you know, Julia, Goldman Sachs caved in. They had three, four rate increases. They come back a little bit with the mystery mm-hmm. of March. Morgan Stanley has always been cautious with one or two rate increases. That's it. it there seems to be a, a lot of opinion shifting down to complete and total data dependency. What data yeah. will you watch? So there are, I think the leading indicators are of, of heightened importance right now. What are those? Those tend to be the interest-sensitive sectors like investment and housing. They've shown some weakness. 
Uh, are they telling us that uh, slowing is in train for, for 2019? Uh, so that's one thing we're watching. They don't look disastrous, but they certainly have plateaued to some degree. Um, and then financial conditions. I mean, they markets are obsessively forward-looking. Are they seeing something uh, real, or is this just sort of a sentiment um, uh, tremor? Uh, and then we sort of get back to business. Yeah. Uh, that's so, so really watching how far this goes. And not just the equity market, really credit widening, credit spread widening has been something to keep an eye on. So, And I think that in turn reflects the global economy. And more than ever, we have to look at what's happening in China, what's happening around the globe, and how is yeah. that going to ripple into our CapEx cycle and our hiring, yeah. et cetera. So. This has been wonderful. Julia Coronado, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it this morning. Within Brexit and within the debate, there needs to be perspective. And across the United Kingdom, you can get that with the Baroness Kennedy of the Shaw's Helena Kennedy is an educator at Mansfield, Oxford, but so, so much more. Just to give you an idea, her level of dissent within the House of Lords uh, is of note. Baroness, thank you so much for being with us uh, today. What does the House of Lords do, given the uproar in your disunited kingdom? I got a pretty good idea of what the House of Commons does. How does the House of Lords fit into this? Well, one of the things that we always like to say, Tom, is that the House of Lords is, of course, a revising chamber when it comes to legislation. But because we're not elected and we're not looking over our shoulders at um, the question of re-election and what our constituents might uh, feel about the way we vote, um, we have a, a level of independence which allows us to be the people who are protectors of our constitutional arrangements and <clears throat> our, um, if you like, right. liberties. And we are actually in the middle of a constitutional crisis here. Um, and uh, yesterday, um, the, the, uh, the, the decision not to have a vote on the deal that the prime minister had secured right. um, was, was a real moment where suddenly um, the House was thrown into chaos. We were, in fact, debating the same issues in the House of Lords and had been due last night to have our own vote. But that was cancelled. Mm. And so there's a moment of stasis here where, you know, people are busying themselves. There's going to be a debate in the Commons this afternoon about the crisis. But um, um, here in the House of Lords, we're, we're dealing with other business. And um, one of the issues that we're looking at is, you know, um, w will there need to be legislation in order to prevent right. the, the no-deal <clears throat> scenario? Lord Skidelsky was with us today, the giant of economic history uh, in your United Kingdom. Uh, the Keynes He's a great favorite of mine. And, and, and Skidelsky went straight to the Irish question, the land question. I would say, I don't know what the distance is from Dublin to Glasgow, but I guess it's, it's like, guys, it's like Martha's Vineyard over to Cape Cod. I mean, it's that that's close. Right. That's, and that's about right. Yeah, that's about right. So he went yeah. right for the Irish question and how this was grossly misjudged within the vote of leave or remain. Do you agree with Lord Skidelsky that the Irish question has just reverberated I, I, from 400 years ago? 
I, I agree that one of the, 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 the key things that is preventing any kind of deal and the problem that has arisen for Theresa May, especially when she's, in a, she's got a minority government and she's dependent on, on the votes of the, uh, the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, which is a, a very right-wing um, Northern Irish party, because she's so dependent on them, um, she really has to try and forge a deal, which me- means that there shouldn't be a border, and nobody wants there to be a border between the North and the South because that has caused so much trouble in the past and and during this period when there has been no border it has been greatly relished by the, the communities north and south and uh, and the idea of there being a hard border between Northern Ireland and, and uh, the Republic um, is, is just won't be reckoned with. But the alternative of having a border which is the Irish Sea, that bit of water that you describe as being like this, this sort of bit of water between Martha's Vineyard and the Cape um, and the idea of that becoming the border is absolutely inimical to unionists in Northern Ireland. So she's over a barrel on that. And there was no question of that being something that was in people's minds at the time of the, of the referendum. Nobody discussed it. Um, um, obviously, there might have been sort of uh, rumblings about it in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland voted to, to remain in the European Union. Um, the European Union has put lots of money into you know, stabilizing the situation over there. And you wouldn't recognize Belfast. It's been rebuilt since the, the, the troubles. Um, and the idea of revisiting that is, is very, is, creates a great deal of anxiety. So it's, uh, um, sorry about that's the bell here in, in the House of Lords, but I ju- it's just that um, that was never really taken account of in a serious way. Baroness Kennedy, uh, as the creator of the BBC TV series Blind Justice, if you had to <laughs> yes. write a script that would reveal the political machinations on domestic on the domestic front in the United Kingdom with those wanting Theresa May's job how would you frame it well, my God, it, 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 that's one of the interesting things here is that everybody, I mean, the Conservative Party at the moment is, is riddled with factions of people who are supporting different people's interests. And there probably are about um, probably a dozen contenders um, who are hoping that Theresa May will have to bite the bullet and go at some point soon. And they are ready to step into the, into the fray and the battle to take over the reins. And of course, there are many people who are Remainers who are worried because most of those people are having to play the the, the Brexit card, and so and then there on the other hand you've got the there the, are divisions also inside the the Labour Party, so it is a very divided situation and, and and the House of Commons is very fractured, and those are the very moments in fact when you probably constitutionally. Um, we were discussing it this morning, some of us who are interested in sort of the constitutional legal implications. This, this is a sort of moment where because you've got gridlock, you ought to have a, a general election. But in fact, um, that's not likely to happen because uh, I think that um, the Conservatives will not want well, that to happen just now. Now, 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 what do you need for Mr. Corbyn? Well, I mean, I would like to hear Mr. Corbyn saying that he um, that he is is 
absolutely wholeheartedly committed to, to remaining and that it would not be in the interests of the majority of the people who would be his, his you know, traditional constituency, the, you know, ordinary folk and working and middle class people in Britain um, would, would often, you know, be voting Labour. And, but they are the majority of the people who are actually in the young, particularly, who support um, Jeremy Corbyn, actually want to remain in Europe. And, um, and he is ambivalent about it. Yeah. And I would like to hear him coming out you know, fully saying that he's for remaining, because I, mean, I have to tell you that that's my position. I'm a remainer. Um, but I, I, I'm also not very keen on referenda. And so the idea of having another ref- referendum right. carries with it risks. But I think that's probably uh, the road that we're going to have to go down. I think we're going to have to have a second referendum. Baroness Kennedy, thank you so much. I look forward to someday we're going to have Baroness Kennedy on, folks, and just talk about the uniqueness of Mansfield College at Oxford. She was a force there for a good amount of time. Uh, Helena Kennedy with the House of Lords. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.